gonemobile.io. It's Gone Mobile. Welcome back to Gone Mobile. In this episode, we're joined by Alex Dunn. How's it going today, Alex? Pretty well. How are you guys? Doing great. So you've been you've been on a real roll lately. It seems like you have like eight or nine blog posts a day or so, sort of taken like uh, you kind of just own Planet Xamarin at this point. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. <laughs> which is it's been fun to watch, but we figured today we'll try and focus. I mean, we'll probably just have to have you on as a, a serial guest to talk about all the cool stuff you're doing. Um, but today we figured we'd kind of focus on uh, the Flux architecture stuff that, that you've been doing. And you recently had a, a Xamarin University guest lecture on it, which was really cool. Um, so we can kind of dig into that because I think it's a topic that most mobile developers and an architecture that a lot of mobile developers won't necessarily be familiar with. So I just to start out, like kind of leaving the mobile part aside, could you just sort of give like what is Flux for anyone who's not aware yeah, so, so Flux is a client-side uh, application architecture and design pattern. It was originally created by Facebook um, and designed for React.js for their applications. You know, they've been pushing React pretty hard, uh, React Native for their mobile development. And basically for all of their many applications outside of just Facebook, they were dealing with really robust solutions with huge teams. And so this was designed to make it easier to manage, test, um, and you know track where data is coming from and going to so that's why they created it uh, but the biggest thing that flux does differently is that it's a unidirectional data flow uh, pattern so data always goes one way and then comes back down the same way no matter what like what view it's coming from or or what type of data it is it's all going in in kind of a circle it's not splitting off anywhere so can you talk about the different you know sort of major pieces at a high level of what the flex architecture is actually made up of yeah, so there's there's four important components to it. There's actions, which are your really basic. Uh, you might do some business logic, maybe just some model manipulation or something like that. And then there's the dispatcher. Uh, an application will have just one single dispatcher that basically handles events uh, for no matter what type of data it is or what actions calling it. Then you have your stores, which is the, really the heart of the architecture. That's where all your data lives, all your your data logic. A lot of times people put all of their business logic there too to keep their actions smaller. And then there's views, um, which are you know the actual UI and, and handling tracking data that comes from stores. So the flow is basically that an action calls the dispatcher with a certain event type and sends data through it. The, um, certain stores will subscribe to a given number of events by those uh, IDs for those actions. So then the dispatcher fires, the stores will pick up the event, they'll run whatever logic they need to to update their data, and then views subscribe to different stores so that when that data is updated, the view will then take the new data and then update its UI accordingly. Cool. Yeah. And, and one of the ways that I've heard uh, a lot of people start describing this this unidirectional data flow, um, you know, because it's really taking hold across a lot of different platforms and frameworks and stuff is just the notion of data down and actions up where it's, you know, you actions result in something happening that data gets pushed down the pipe and then actions, you know, just kind of goes around in a circle there. Um, so, you know, before we dig too much into to the architecture, like, like, what would you say is is the reason why uh, a developer, just in general, like, would choose this architecture over some of the, you know, either like MVC or MVVM, or that 
you know, are, are a lot more common in a lot of different uh, application platforms? Sure. So uh, that's a good question. One thing I like to always preface with is that with every design pattern architecture, it's not a catch-all. You know, it's going to fit your unique situation. Uh, but, it, you know, if this is a situation where you think it fits for you, then that's great. But what what's great about it is that, you know, there's there's a, a far more defined rule for, for how your data works. Uh, a lot of times with MVC or with MVVM, you'll have multiple view models or multiple controllers handling the same data. Sometimes those controllers will even have to communicate the same thing in a different way, or they'll have to communicate between each other somehow. Uh, and so that gets hard to track, especially when you have a big team and a big code base. It, it's hard to see, like if an error happens somewhere, you got to find out where exactly it came from and you got to check, you know, now a whole different tree of, of different places it could go to. Um, with this, it's all coming from one place. All your data comes from a, a store. So if you know, oh, this error, this issue is related to this certain like kind of domain of data, then we can track it back to the store. We know exactly what events are firing that, that gets it to that point in the view and stuff like that. So definitely the, the best situation to consider it is if you're in a situation where you're going to have many different views, many different uh, data types, and you might have a big team. It just makes it easier to keep track of stuff and it makes it easy to test. And so you talked a little bit about using, you know, multiple stores. How how does that fit into this architecture exactly? Yeah, so so the coolest thing in my opinion about Flux is that there there's this this mentality that multiple views can call multiple actions, they can call the same actions. Multiple stores for uh, different data types can listen to the same actions coming from the dispatcher. So say we had an event called like update user profile info where it's going to fire once I've changed my username or something. But we might have multiple stores that might need to reference that data. So we can fire that single action that says, hey, the user profile data is updated. Then maybe you know my current profile store is going to pick up that event and actually update the data locally, maybe call to a repository to your local storage or something like that. But then on the other side, there might be a store for other people's profiles where you might want to go and update someone else's info or something like that. And then from the other aspect, multiple views can listen to events from multiple stores or to the same store. So that event that gets propagated down from the store now for the up to user profile can update any number of views just because those multiple views are listening to the same store. So that's kind of the, the general way it works with multiple stores. And it's, it's pretty neat the way it can it can kind of tree out in a safe and easy to track way. Right. And then a lot of the, you know, especially for anything that kind of originates in the JavaScript world, like the canonical example that you always find is, you know, the, the to do app. And I know that, that yeah. you had a, a similar <laughs> example for the, the Xamarin side, which we'll get to. Um, but before we get there, I, I would love to, <clears throat> I'd love if you could kind of talk through how well this sort of architecture scales as you get into more complex applications that would have, you know, a, a whole bunch of stores and views and actions. Like how, how well have you found that this scales to, to large real world applications? Yeah, so the real purpose of it is to be able to scale. So, you know, when, when we do the, the super simple to-do list examples, it's really not even doing the architecture just, justice. If, if anything, it makes it seem way overly complex. <laughs> you know, we've got stores and actions and action types and a bunch of view models and views all to just get a list of data that we can just delete or complete or something like that. It seems ridiculous. Um, but when it when it grows and, and in real applications where I've used it, it's become incredibly helpful. Uh, I've used it with a lot of real-time communication stuff. So if we have uh, a bunch of chats 
or maybe uh, a bunch of different groups with group chat or even with voice and video technology, it makes it easy to fire a single event. You have you know exactly what event it is just because of naming convention. So you're going to say, okay, a chat message was sent. I know exactly what stores need to know that this message was sent based on where it's sent and who sent it and stuff like that. And so when you get to multiple different data types, multiple different stores, it all comes down to knowing what actions are fired and what realistically needs to know about it. So that's why it's easy to track. Plus, it's it's pretty simple to do you know, a solution search for the name of the event to go find out what's actually using it if you know that's what's failing or something like that. Um, so yeah, growing it out, uh, and, and, and it's also an area in, you know, the, the React.js community where people debate often about different responsibilities between actions and stores and stuff like that. A lot of people will put business logic in their actions. A lot of people will put it only in their stores. Uh, and those kind of approaches can change the way your actual code base scales out. So if you keep your actions super simple and your stores have all the data logic and all the business logic, then having many, many different stores could be a little messy because then, you, you know, it's harder to track... Um, you know, you're going to have a giant file with thousands of lines of code because there's so many different events that could fire against a given type. Um, but yeah, another, another actually, probably the most common place that it's debated is where to track errors as they happen. So I've seen some people, they'll have, you know, their, their store for, we'll use the to-do as an example, they'll have their to-do items store, which will hold their collection of items that they have. It'll hold events for manipulating it. But when something goes wrong, some people will have a to-do error store that will listen to the same events that the to-do store does itself. And then if it detects that something wrong, it handles tracking the errors. Uh, other people will just handle it in the same store. So the store will have the data and it'll keep track of errors that go on. Um, that's my preference. But again, if it gets too big, if your code base gets too big, that's just more stuff that's in one single location that just makes that single code file gigantic. Right. And sort of to the, the point you were making before, uh, what's your experience with like, like, let's say you build out of a, a medium to large size application built on Flux. So you have all sorts of actions and stores and what have you. Um, and then you have a new developer sort of come into this project where whereas, you know, if they might be used to, say, MVVM, where there it's a lot easier to maybe figure out where something's coming from or, you know, the relationship between a view model and the corresponding view. Whereas with something like Flux, you get a lot more indirection and, and you know, event-based tracking and stuff like that. Um, have you found it kind of difficult for people to, to sort of walk into a solution like this and, and figure out what's going on? So I've actually found it uh, much easier simply because every single type of action data follows that same flow. Or if you're bringing someone into a big code base that doesn't have that control, you know, there might be examples where, hey, this view model does it this way, but this one does it this other way. But with Flux, it's, you know, you can give them a simple example of like, this action happens, it goes to the dispatcher, these stores listen to it as an example, and these views listens to those stores. So then when they go in and start building out completely new features, they know, oh, everything goes through the same flow. So it, not even just the actual data flow, but the actual code development flow. I'm going to go to define my action types that are going to happen for this model. I'm going to define some actions that call the dispatcher. I'm going to create my store to handle the data that comes down, and I'm going to create my views that subscribe to that store. So it's much easier once once they know what Flux is, it's it's pretty simple to pick up and, and cruise through features. Um, for someone that hasn't done it before, it can be a little bit more complex just because if there isn't an existing setup, 
it is a, a, a much more different approach than, than people might be used to. So if you say, hey, go set up you know, a, a Flux-based application, and you know, the, it can get messy if they don't know what they're doing up front. But there, so that upfront work definitely pays off for bringing more people on. So how does this all fit into Xamarin um, and, you know, the MVVM pattern itself and, and like Xamarin forms, uh, given that this came from the JavaScript world and you're obviously kind of fitting it into the Xamarin, uh, you know, hole or, or the whatever shape yeah. peg this is going into. <laughs> so um, in, in my video, actually, I, I talked a bit about uh, that that might help people coming from React, people that have used Flux before that are looking at Xamarin. You know, they might love the pattern and try to figure it out. So there's, there is kind of a, a nice one-to-one -one pairing from different things from React in the JavaScript world to Xamarin. So you could take, for example, a React components render function. You can compare that easily to your actual view. Um, you could take your, like, um, state for your component, and you can compare that to a view model that has the two-way bindings. Um, basically the same thing applies for properties to views properties and then like the component will mount did mount will unmount blah 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 all that react lifecycle stuff is is directly related to the xamarin forms at least lifecycle or if you're looking at android it's going to be something like your fragment or activity lifecycle and there's there's a decent one to one there so for people that are coming from there if you just think of it that way it's pretty easy to move into it um, but it's it's cool because you can take with MVVM and still apply the two-way bindings to this pattern. You know, if you're using Xamarin Forms, you don't have to take out the cool stuff that they built to use this pattern. Rather than just having views listen to changes in stores and having views call actions, you just add that layer of your view model. So when you have an event come down from your store, rather than saying like, oh, go update the text of this label, you would just update the property on your view model and it would propagate down. Um, and then from the other side, rather than having you know a button click event on your view actually go call an action, you would have a command on your view model or something like that go call to the action. So there's there's just another layer of separation, uh, but it, it's it's actually it actually plays pretty well uh, together. And and you can kind of see that in the example I do in the course or on my YouTube video. Uh, but even when you get to a larger code base, that same thing still applies. I mean, it seems, you know, just thinking through it conceptually, it seems like some aspects of MVVM and, and just two-way data binding in general would sort of be at odds with the sort of unidirectional data flow. Like, do you find that you have to, you know, you have to be disciplined as, as a developer to make sure that you're, you're kind of sticking to the pattern? Or, like, how does that generally work? A little bit. And, and you know, that's kind of true with, with any of these patterns, even just with MVVM. Um, you know, we, I've definitely seen situations where we set up a 100% MVVM solution and then there's still someone going in and creating actual events on the view and then just calling stuff directly. So there's definitely still some discipline. Um, I would also say that it's, it's easier to communicate things being propagated from the view to the view model to actions. Uh, where it might be a little more difficult in certain situations to take things coming down from the store um, and updating them, especially in situations where those stores data that stores data is updating in the background. A lot of people will, will miss the the need to call things from the UI thread when they actually go to update the view. Uh, less important in Xamarin Forms because a lot of that's handled for us, but uh, for some Xamarin Android and iOS native situations. Uh, it's important to make sure that things updating in the background that you are taking down through events still make it to the UI thread. And I'd imagine with two-way data binding, like you're probably not usually 
calling an action on a, a change of an object property or something like that, right? Like, do you find yeah. that's maybe usually the case where your action is more a traditional MVM command than, you know, a changing data property of some sort that's bound? Yeah, so um, there there are definitely some situations. Obviously, using the commands is way easier because it is kind of like a one-to-one pairing. Fire a command, fire an action. Um, but the, for example, there is one uh, that we had done before uh, in a real-time chat where we wanted to be able to send through SignalR up to our server and then back down to other people when someone's typing. So that means we need to be able to track the text changing. And while still trying to stay within MVVM and not actually having the text change event fire whenever we have uh, the set property for the the text property on our view model or, or whatever the new text property, whatever you'd call it, uh, then that set also does have to set the new value, but then also call that action. So that could, that's kind of one of those weird situations where setting a property does have to call an action, but it's it doesn't look too bad, you know, because you're already setting up to call property changed and stuff like that. So uh, it's not too bad just to add one more line to call an action, and that's and it, that happens far less often than the actual commands being used to to fire those actions. This episode is brought to you by Raygun. Raygun offers leading error and crash reporting to over 30,000 developers around the globe and now offers real user monitoring for both web and mobile apps. Raygun's native mobile support brings deep analytics about how users are engaging with your mobile apps. Raygun platform customers can discover problems affecting their end users automatically, giving developer teams unique insights into the performance of their apps. Raygun offers a free 30-day trial, so get started at raygun.com today and make sure to thank them for sponsoring Gone Mobile. So I'd love to sort of kind of distill that into, you know, as close as as simple as of an example as we can get. And it's always difficult to talk through kind of architecture and code to some extent. But let's say that you have a screen that has uh, just a text box. So just an entry and uh, a submit button. So, you know, you want the user gets to enter something into that text box. Uh, and then that gets reflected in the UI, obviously, and then they could submit a button that executes some action or command. Like, how does how would that what would that architecture sort of look like, and what would be the the flux pieces involved to to kind of wire all that up? Sure. So let's say you know we have an actual data type called like message or something like that, which has an ID and the string uh, for the text you're sending. You probably want a, a message store that has the collection of messages that are going to be sent back and forth. Then you're going to want message actions for things that can be applied to messages. So that might be uh, message text changed, message edited, message sent, stuff like that. Um, The store is going to listen to those actions and then fire them back down to the view. But from the aspect of just having a text box and a send button, in with MVVM, in whatever property you have that's bound to the actual text of the entry, you're going to want to set uh, an act that that set call in your view model to call the action if you're doing something like text changed, uh, and then for the actual sending, you're going to want to have a command bound to the button, and then have that command actually call the action from your view model. Okay, so then, sort of like, if if I'm following that correctly, it sort of ends up being that like you're you're kind of like faking a little bit of that one way direct you know, data flow as far as that view model goes, where, you know, in in the case of something like React, where it is literally just a one-way data flow rendering engine, you know, the, that text change event would kind of propagate all the way back out and then back down into the, the rendering function there. Whereas in the case of a say Xamarin forms entry that's backed by a a view model property, 
you're sort of just saying, well, update both that view model property and fire the event back up so that the store is up to date. Is that right? Yeah, yeah, that, that's the way it could work. Another way I've seen it done, and I do this in my example, is to kind of shortcut it a little bit where rather than binding to a separate property in the view model, in, in the case of the example, it's an observable collection of like a to-do item model. Rather than having an observable collection there and a collection in the store, that observable collection in the view model just returns a reference to the store's observable collection. So there are some ways you can shortcut it. Um, obviously, there's that's kind of the, the best situation to do it. If it's for a single property, you're probably not going to want to to shortcut it. But really, the, the thing is that that action from, say, the text change with that two-way binding, the only time that you would ever really want an action for something like that is if other data or, or other logic needs to happen when that text is changed. If it's really just core to the UI, then it can stay just within the view and view model, and you can keep the two-way binding that way. That's true. I, I guess at that point, you're sort of analogous to the, you know, a, a React component and its local state versus what yeah, propagates exactly. back out, right? Okay. Exactly. That makes sense. So we talked a lot about using this with Xamarin Forms. Are there any other frameworks or any other uh, patterns that you've managed to squeeze into this uh, or, yeah, so, or use it with? <laughs> yeah, so that's that's actually another cool part about it, uh, especially with Xamarin Forms, is that it does play well with other patterns. Um, we've been talking about using it with MVVM, which is obviously another pattern. Um, another one that I, I definitely like using it with is a, a full Onion architecture. And I don't know if you guys have talked about that on the show before, uh, but it's really like a full application separation of concerns. So Flux, it, its core focus is just on data-driven UI. It doesn't care about what's stored in SQLite or, or what business logic or what APIs you're, you're calling out to or web services or whatever. So for the rest of your application, um, it can still play well by kind of living in its own shell within that like layer of your onion, uh, if we're still talking about the onion architecture specifically. Uh, another thing that it, it also plays well with is with inversion of control and dependency injection. So you can inject uh, your stores and your actions, especially because you really should only have one instance of it for your application. So if you register it and inject it into each of your view models that needs to reference it, uh, that's probably what I would even suggest doing, even if you're uh, not using something really robust. Uh, for the rest of your application, I, I still think it's useful to inject your actions and stores to your view models that are going to reference it. Um, so yeah, it, it plays well with other patterns. I, I've also seen it done with uh, domain-driven design because it, it kind of lends to that anyway. If you're designing your stores to be domain-driven on their own, uh, continuing that outside of the UI scope into the rest of your application just makes sense. So. So for as as you're starting to leverage this sort of architecture in in your apps, like is it really just a matter of you know setting up your classes and data flow in the right way, or are you starting to build out any sort of framework that you can kind of take with you from app to app to to enable this more easily? So there's there's definitely some reusability, especially if you're not using Xamarin Forms, um, mostly because the that dispatcher, right? So the application is a single dispatcher. For Xamarin Forms, we have the messaging center, which works exactly how we want it to for the dispatcher anyway. Um, but if you're not using a lot of the stuff that comes baked with Xamarin Forms, something like building your own dispatcher has always been reusable. And and I, that's definitely true outside of Xamarin uh, for some pub sub mechanisms. I mean, they're easy to build, but it's also easy to reuse. 
Um, also some of the, like the base stuff that you can build. So in my video and in my lecture, I, I made it very clear that we wanted to create a base store that handled a lot of the subscribing, unsubscribing, and all that lifecycle and emitting events down to views so that when you're creating your specific stores, they don't have to handle all that logic individually. All they care about is what events they get, the data they have, and stuff like that. So when you build your base store the way you want it, you know, you can carry that over application to application. Cool. And you mentioned in passing earlier that uh, this sort of lends itself pretty well to, to testability. Could you kind of elaborate on that a bit? Yeah. So um, especially the same way that um, dependency injection and version of control help, doing that within this is going to help even more. Um, but really the testability is just being able to track where data is going between stores. So you can still mock a store the same way you would mock, say, like a repository or something like that. Uh, so you can track to make sure your views are calling proper actions and you can see uh, or your actions are, are calling the proper events or you're, you can separate it again to, to listen to your stores to take in mock data from your actions rather than using real data. So in the same way that separating your concerns for your application for testability with things like repositories, um, services or data providers or something like that with implementing interfaces and stuff like that, mocking the same type of stuff with your UI uh, layer on itself with Flux makes it easy to separate each of those individual concerns beyond just testing my UI, testing my repository and data layer, testing my business layer. You can break the UI layer down to testing the, the actual UI logic, testing just the MVVM components, testing just the data-driven stuff from the store and stuff like that. Have you explored any of the uh, other related architectures that seem to have emerged as a re reaction to Flux? Like there's Redux or... Yeah, so I've, I've used them in JavaScript. I haven't used them in Xamarin yet, just because I don't think I've run into a situation where a, a pretty simple Flux setup hasn't really solved all my problems uh, for the Xamarin applications. But it, the, because we have a decent one-to-one -one from your React um, components and the, that uh, whole UI flow and their whole UI structure to how we can apply it to different Xamarin applications, you can kind of know the pattern and apply it the same way. Uh, once you have a general idea of how Flux works and the unidirectional stuff, uh, building things like reducers uh, might help. I, I can't think of a situation right now where, where I wish I had done that. Um, yeah, it, there's definitely, once you understand like that, that relationship, if you understand the, the patterns coming from React, then it could be pretty simple to apply. Yeah, I know just speaking from my own experience of having built some stuff on Flux and sort of went running for, for something different. Like I know, like I, the, the concept of, for me personally, like the, the concept of having multiple stores and then you end up with this sort of cascading events where stores can update other stores and subscribe. And then I, before, even with a pretty simple app, I pretty quickly started running into cases where there's almost like race conditions between stores updating and it got a lot more complicated. Whereas then I found some, I ended up settling on, on Redux myself where it, it fit a lot better with, with my per mental model of the application too, where, you know, you have a single store, a single source of truth, and then kind of reducers that take things, you have slices in that store and then reducers that kind of filter stuff out from there. So like, I like to, I tend to think pretty functionally in general, so it sort of fit well there. Yeah. Um, and I've always kind of wanted to 
to do like a, an F sharp Xamarin project that, that leverages that sort of architecture just cause it, it's a really good fit for that sort of language. Yeah. Yeah. F sharp would definitely be a great fit for, for doing Redux. The, the whole reducer pattern would be perfect for it. That'd right. Like by nature, the entire yeah. pattern is just functional. Yeah, yeah exactly. Uh, I, I didn't, I hadn't actually thought about building something that way. I mean, I haven't used F sharp very much. I know that it's, it's a big interest of yours. Um, but I definitely think that would be that would be awesome to try. I might do that. I tend to be loud about that, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but sort of to that point too, like the the whole unidirectional data flow thing, just you know, it, it it works a lot better. Even in the JavaScript side, it works a whole lot better when you can ensure immutability, because then, you know, that's the only thing that truly prevents you from from making mistakes or kind of screwing up the the data patterns there. Um like have you and I guess we talked about this a little bit earlier, but like, have you had to do much to compensate for that in the, you know, a C-sharp world or a Xamarin world where everything is mutable and that's just how the framework works? Yeah, so that, that's funny you bring it up because that is actually one of the, one of the bigger flaws with it. Um, so for, I, I talked about you know, that shortcut I took taking that observable collection of to-do items right from the store rather than having both. Um, the reason is... is um, not just for the sake of the shortcut, but because we've run into issues before where we have uh, an item from an observable collection in our view model bound to a view. And that property, maybe something, some property on that is updated or, or maybe it gets deleted from that collection. And then having to also go back up to the store again to update that item, that mutability or, or the, the mutable model is already going to see some of those changes um, and it might not work the way you expect it to. So. Um, there, there are some ways to kind of make things immutable, but that ends up just duplicating models, um, which in turn is just duplicating memory used to, to keep something pretty small. Um, so that's where, you know, I've definitely run into issues with it, um, where C sharp has kind of, you know, bitten me before. Um, so that's, that's a good point that you bring up where, you know, maybe C sharp isn't the best place to do this, maybe looking at something more functional would be better where we can stay uh, immutable with those models. But there's way, there are ways around it, like I said. It's, it's not impossible. It's not a, a reason to stop. Uh, but it is a place where you might run into issues where you don't expect it. Right. And also, just regardless of the language that you're in, you're still working on top of you know, be you in F sharp or C sharp, you know, if, if you're interacting with iOS or Android or Xamarin forms, you're still interacting with the same mutable APIs anyway. Yeah, exactly. So it's just a, the only separation you get is in the, the non-platform code that you, you write for the rest of it. Yep. So have you, do you have any observations about like the performance implications of using this pattern in your apps? I mean, like good, good performance or worse performance either way? Uh, so one of the things that um, I, I definitely wouldn't say there's like a, a, you know, a blanket statement like, oh, if you use this, you're, you're going to have to deal with a little bit of performance issues. One thing that I, I'd like to emphasize to keep in mind is that this is really event-driven, right? The, the whole point is that actions are events, those fire other events, stores are subscribing to events from the dispatcher, views are subscribing to stores events that are emitted down. So you really need to make sure you're cleaning up those event handlers and stuff like that from your views. So um, I've definitely seen people that that aren't aware of that go in and they're, you know, they're just wiring up events and events. Like maybe a view listens to like 50 different events coming down and those might actually have some serious impact, especially when you have such a large application. The more your users flipping through your pages and you're rebinding events, 
uh, the more that's left in memory is going to be pretty bad. You know, it's a general practice to clean up your events in C Sharp that, that people should do, but it's especially important here because there are just so many uh, as your application gets larger. So I mentioned it briefly in, in the, the guest lecture I did at Xamarin U, um, but it's, it's best to kind of tie your event bindings to the lifecycle of your page. So as your page is appearing, go rebind to the store, go update your data. As it's disappearing, unbind your stuff so it's not sitting in memory. Have you experimented at all with sort of using anything like like reactive extensions for event handlers to to kind of clean up how that how that plays out? Uh, I haven't I haven't used them with it yet, uh, mostly because the applications I've used have been pretty simple with the way that we can set up. Um, clearing our events, you know, we can make a, a base content page type that will go call a bunch of already implemented base methods to go clean out events and stuff like that. Uh, but I did have a similar question come up in my XAMU course um, that at the time I didn't really have a good answer for. But I do think using reactive extensions on top of this could be a great solution to a lot of those problems, especially if you are on a team where it's difficult for you to, to get your developers to clean up the code clean up their events and stuff, which happens, you know, there, there's big teams out there and it's, it's hard to keep track of stuff. Um, using something like that would definitely help. It, it definitely would. And, and I, I would urge people to try it. I haven't actually used it in a real life application myself, um, but it, there's no reason why it would hurt. So. Cool. So it sounds like, uh, you know, in the, in the work that you've done that you've built at least uh, reasonably complex applications sort of on this. So you know, is it safe to say that that this is a pattern that you would definitely recommend for for folks to to check out and and see if it fits the applications that they're working on? With oh, the caveat of you know, there's no one architecture that fits yeah, everything, obviously. Right, right, right. Of of course, there's no there's no architecture that's that's always going to fit every need. But I definitely would suggest it. Uh, plus, there's a huge community around Flux in general. Uh, people are building other uh, frameworks and stuff on top of it. Obviously, that's all JavaScript. This is you know kind of a newer approach. Uh, to Xamarin application, so you know you might not be able to find the answers you're looking for if you run into an issue. You might have to go to the React community for a little bit of help, and then kind of leverage translating that kind of stuff over to your applications. But uh, I've become very comfortable using it. Uh, it's also interestingly um, an architecture and design pattern that's easy to take your previous app and build to it. So if you're already using MVVM or any similar style adding that layer on top might help you and it's, it doesn't take too long. So I didn't do that in my XAMU course, but in my YouTube video, which is covering the same topic, uh, we did do that. So we built that list with just MVVM and said, all right, now let's, you know, fluxify it. Let's take our um, actions that are happening against our list in our view model and go, you know, create it in a store and create actions that do the same thing. It takes time, but it, it's not hard to do. It's maybe a good way to learn the pattern too, to take something existing like that and move it over. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I wouldn't do it with something really large and robust that you already have, but if you have a, a small to medium sized application, taking that and, and you know applying flux to your existing project might be a great way to, to learn how to do it. And and learn the caveats of your previous, you know, coding styles or your you know natural approaches to problems and, and how you can still use flux or, or problems you might run into. Uh, that would be a great place to start. It might be better than just starting from scratch, building some basic to-do app. Um, the, the other thing I was wondering, like, do you have a, a library out there or a NuGet package or a set of templates, or do you think there'd be value in sort of creating some kind of basic, um, you know, it might be somewhat opinionated on the implementation of the pattern, but something to get people started? 
Yeah, so I have um, actually two GitHub repositories. I have one for that that's empty with just some libraries that was uh, intended for the lecture for people that wanted to start from scratch. Um, and then I also have the full implementation that's in both of those videos up there. Uh, so it's not you know a framework where you can go install a NuGet package, but I I do think there there might be some value in doing that, and I might try to do that uh, later this month maybe um, if I can find some free time just to take at least take things like the the base actions uh the mm -hmm. base stores and stuff like that and, and apply them right and i guess that would be again sort of analogous to facebook's flux implementation where you know facebook claims that flux is just a general architecture but then yeah. they provide their reference implementation yeah. just in case that happens to fit what you want so you can sort of take that if it works and build your own otherwise yeah exactly yeah, they have a lot of examples where they're using their library, which will have the dispatcher that they've built, uh, some of the, the base observable stuff that they have for their stores and, and a lot of their cleanup. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I think it might be valuable to, to build it, and I'll probably try to do that this month. Awesome. So is there anything we missed along the way that we should call out? Uh, we'll include in the show notes, uh, you know, your videos and code samples and, and all that stuff. But is there anything else that, that we should cover before we uh, wrap up here? Um, not that I can think of. I mean, we did we did cover actually quite a lot of this, um, which is cool. So, yeah, I mean, that's that's flux. And, you know, we talked about a whole lot of issues you can run into, how to get around them and stuff like that. So uh, I'm going to be putting out a, a blog series about it. Obviously, there are the videos out there, uh, but some people don't like to listen to me talk, so maybe they can read what I write. <laughs> so I have a few of those drafted. I just need to publish them with my other eight that I do a day. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, that's what it feels like. It, yeah. It's good stuff, though. <laughs> All right. Well, well, Alex, thanks for, so much for taking the time to, to chat with us today. Great. Thank you, guys. Thanks, Greg. Thanks, John. Our pleasure. And thanks as always for everyone for listening, and we'll see you next time on Gone Mobile.